Your story is waiting for you today. Your story has something new to say. But your story will only come out to play when you're alone. Alone. Alone in a room with invisible people. The following episode may contain swearing. Alone in a Room with Invisible People is brought to you by hollyswritingclasses.com. If you find value in what we do and you'd like to support the podcast, go to coffee.com, that's K-O hyphen F-I.com forward slash alone, or you can go to alonewithinvisiblepeople.com forward slash support us to find out more. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Gallardo, the host of Alone in a Room with Invisible People. I'm here with author and teacher Holly Lyle, and today's topic is, who are your 10 most influential writers and why? Um, yeah, mom's been excited to get into this topic for a while, and I just, I really had to, to think on it and work on it, but we also had pressing matters when it came to, <laughs> you know, moving and then the Halloween episode and... So we're going to get into that, but first we're going to talk about what we did this week. Yeah. If if anything, because I know we've had a very, very hectic week. Yeah, that's, it was, again, it was unpacking, um, doing a lot of moving paperwork, uh, getting accounts shifted from one place to another place, and addresses shifted from one place to another place, and just a lot of, um, just just stuff. And at the same time, um, I did relocate the beginning writer working tour, uh, and I got that back up and running again. Yeah, so, I saw. Yeah. Yeah, and it says you updated it and everything? Yeah. it's It wasn't really all that out of date, but it did need to be moved to my new um, email. I've changed um, email, commercial email providers, because one of them was having a lot of dropouts and stuff like that, and they were getting really expensive. And I found one that was less expensive, and it's really, really good, and was recommended by somebody who I like a lot. So he got yeah. an affiliate commission, and I got oh, a good. New, yeah, uh, and I got a new um, uh, provider for my emails. So I'm getting everybody moved over now, and, and I'm reviving some of those classes that have been kind of defunct and ignored for a while. Um, explain what the Beginning Writers Tour is. It is, um, I think, eight weeks? Nine. Nine weeks, okay. Uh, in which I walk writers who have never, who've always wanted to write, but who have not been writing step by step through each separate part of a skill that you need to know in order to write. One new skill each week, very, very simple stuff. The entire thing is included right in the email, but there are links and there's a forum. And the forum is, of course, free. You just create your account, go in and, and start posting your work. Beginning Writers Tour is free too. It's just, it is uh, delivered strictly by email. You sign up for the email. There's no charge for anything. And it is a way, if you have always wanted to write, but have never actually written, to get started. And by the time you have finished the class, you will have created some kind of cool stuff. Nice. Yeah. I saw the email come through and I was like, oh, that's cool. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I've, I've been on your lists for a very long time. So mm -hmm. that coming in was like, you know, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. where did that come from? <laughs> something new and different. Well, actually, yes. something old but revived, and yes. and back in back at work again. Well, for for me, most of mine has just been Halloween, 
you know, episode related things. So far, we have, I think, 91 stories. Um, it depends because we're still waiting on a couple of contracts. By the time this airs, however, this is going to be November 5th. So you guys will have already heard. So I'm not sure how many stories are going to air. We're still waiting on a few contracts. Most of the people at this point have sent in contracts. Um, but I'm very excited. I have edited what, half of yours. Mm. I've recorded all of mine. I've edited a little bit. And it's just Mark's came in. And I know that I'm going to give him a shout out on the the Halloween episode, mm-hmm. but I just want to let people know that he's done all of this work for free, you know, because it's us. Um, he has a, an incredible talent for, for different voices and dialects and, and really putting a lot of passion into his work. And he had something like 28 stories. Mm-hmm. He also works full time as a driver and the company he works for was taking hours upon hours to get him a hotel room after work almost every single night if not every single night for the last uh week so even though he recorded some beforehand he still had the vast majority to record on the road and then he also for some reason because he's an idiot (laughs) (laughs) edited them all which i told him i'm like listen these this is these are the priorities right here don't worry about editing blah 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 and then he got insulted when i said i i get it i get it it's a control thing you want to be in control of your work he's like no <laughs> uh, it, he, he was very very offended he was like i would just be embarrassed if i sent you unedited work yeah. like, aww, that's yeah. so cute <laughs> yeah but he's I just really want to exp- express to people, like, it's it's a lot of work on all of our ends, but Mark had other things going on that any sane person would not have still not only done the voice work, but made the deadline. And it, if you know Mark, you know deadlines are not his friend. They so, are not, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but he, he really, it. yeah. <laughs> He really wanted to get those stories in for us, for you guys. So really, if, if, if he doesn't have social media handles, I think he has a Twitter. But just, you know, if you want to give him a shout out in the forums um, or on Facebook or on Instagram, I will send along your thanks to him because yes. he, he did a really amazing job and on time. I will note that after we are done doing uh, today's episode, I am recording the stories that I recorded before and lost. I just wanted to have that in there as a, yeah, that's, that I am adding to your work. uh, Oh. Because you are still going to have to edit those because I don't do my own editing because I suck at it. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's fine. Yeah. It's, it's, that's no, not a big deal. I mean, shit happens. We've had to record entire podcasts before, (laughs) re-record because of issues. So it's really, it's just part of the podcast business, I guess. Um, (laughs) My good news, though, is that I did get a very small amount of writing done um, just to kind of like loosen up the flow of my brain. And I started where I had started back into the revisions last week with very little. I got even less done this week, but I still did a little. (laughs) So, I mean, at this point with the workload from the episodes and everything and the contract issues and and contacting the authors and really trying to make sure we have everything, I didn't have very much time, but I know that I need that consistency. 
I know that I need to, you know, show up and work a little bit so that it becomes easier. And once I have the podcast episodes for the Halloween thing done, then it'll be a little bit easier to to break back into longer time on the revision. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's just such a mammoth project. Yes. Yeah, the Halloween episodes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, especially with possibly 91 or 92 stories. I still, math is not my friend. I can't count for (laughs) shit. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, you get that from me. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing, too, that I wanted to mention, because we've we've kind of been salty AF and giving Harlequin some, some little shade here and there, <laughs> um, I do think the submission was kind of, I don't know, just buried by accident. And like I, uh, I reached out via Twitter to the editor of the line that I submitted to, and I was just asking for a basic timeline, like, hey, is it normal to be waiting 14 months, 14 plus months? for a submission to come back because if I was rejected, I'd like to be able to submit it elsewhere. And I I was very nice. Um, At least I hope it came across as nice and not snarky. Yeah. And she apparently almost immediately responded, sent you a DM, you know, like very, very quickly. And I, having been used to Harlequin, (laughs) not hearing back from them. Yes. um, uh, I didn't remember to check so when I checked my email like seven or eight hours later I saw that she had sent me a message so hopefully I if if I hear from them before 2020 I'm going to be thrilled um (laughs) she was very nice she was very professional she seemed very concerned that I've been waiting 14 plus months so I got to give her kudos on that the fact that she responded at all was wonderful it it was very professional so um I, I just I know the timeline of work. I know, well, I don't know. That's the thing is right. that, the, you know, but I know how much work this kind of stuff is now. Yeah. <laughs> because of last year and this year with the Halloween stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the date that she gave me, I'm not going to be a bitch if it, you know, if, if it passes and I don't hear from her because I, I kind of get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but I, did want to update everybody because I get a lot of questions about, well, have you heard back from Harlequin? Were you accepted? Were you rejected? Blah, blah, blah. And like I said, I will tell you guys anything that comes through. Yes. Okay. So let's get into today's topic again. That is who are your 10 most influential writers and why? Okay. I'm going to note right off the bat here that I have no, um, just, just enormously, tremendously, um, literary writers in my list. Um, yeah, we talked about this before we yeah. started the podcast. Yeah, because I mentioned that, you know, mine are pretty simple. They're not special. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, well, mine are special to me. Yeah. But um, this is not, uh, I, I was not influenced by any literary writers. I read them. Um, I read a lot of them. But they their work did not speak to me in the way that the writers that I am about to introduce you to now did. And these are people who gave me significant portions, not just of the joy that I found in reading, but also Mm -hmm. in my career. Um, They changed the way that I viewed the world in various ways that I'll explain as I go through this. Um, And they changed 
they they made me understand things about story and about characters and about plot and things that yeah um, and that were and they just brought me a level of joy that um every single one of these I love so I'm going to start with my first we're going to and we're working backwards from 10 to one and I'll note that I have 13 I think in my top 10 yeah I've got (laughs) I've got the same problem yeah yeah, because, yeah, but, but I will explain why in each thing. And my very first one, uh, I found him when I was in either fourth or fifth grade. His name was Clifford B. Hicks. He wrote the Alvin Fernald children's book series. And Alvin Fernald was a boy genius. He was an inventor. He created um, these cool little contraptions and machines and things. And he had a younger sister named Daphne, um, which I read as Daphne for, like, the first three years that I read him because I didn't realize how it was spelled so strangely why how you pronounce it. Yeah like Hermione I didn't know how to pronounce it until the second book because I finally had to ask you I'm like what the fuck is his name? Yeah because it looks like Hermione. Yeah yeah that's what I was saying and my I thought I thought it was a French name. Yeah. Hermione. Yeah. And (laughs) and, maybe Spanish. (laughs) Yes exactly it is something that yeah. So he Clifford B. Hicks gave me two kid characters who were in a situation that I shared in that I had a younger sibling. I had two younger siblings, but I had one that was a pain in the ass. Um, the, the older of my younger siblings was not, but she had things going on. Um, the younger one was a pain in the ass and was of the opposite gender. And Alvin Fernald was this great, smart kid with good friends and they went out and they did cool stuff and they rode their bicycles places and they lived in a small town and the small town that they lived in was, well, actually I read them when I was living here in this particular town all those years ago. Uh, (laughs) I got them from the school library and um, I took them out and read them all, put them back, read them all again. They They were wonderful. And they gave me this first real set of characters who felt real to me, who felt like real kids in real situations, obviously with much cooler skills than I had and with one guy who could invent stuff, which I thought was just the most awesome thing. But he did it with stuff you could kind of find at home, you know? And mm-hmm. it made me, it gave me this sense of, of the potential of being capable to do things and figure things out as a kid, not having adults tell you how to do things, just figuring it out on your own. And that was when I started taking things apart. Um, I got my first free tape recorder because my parents gave me one that was broken. And I took it apart and I figured out what was wrong with it. And I did this fix on the little switch thing with a pair of tweezers and a couple of other things. And I got the thing to work again, so they let me keep it. (laughs) And that was strictly from Alvin Fernald. And, and from Clifford B. Hicks's work. And a lot of my writing career depends on, specifically on that knowledge that you can take things apart, look at them, figure out how they work, and then put them back together again. Yeah. My whole freaking career. Yeah. So, okay, who's your, who's your 10? Um, mine are not in any order as far as, um, like, when I found them. So, <laughs> as I go... It's going to be a little weird because the timeline is is very scattered. But um, my number 10 is Wendy and Richard um, Peeney or 
Piney. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce the name, but it's the um, creators of ElfQuest. Oh. And um, Walter Spence, you know, he has since passed, which, you know, uh, kind of rocked me emotionally really hard. But he was a friend of ours who we stayed with while we were technically homeless. We had a place to stay. And one of the things he did for Mark and me was give us his ElfQuest books to read. Um, or lend us. Yeah, lend them. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, in, you know, complete disclosure, I've only read the first three. Um, I've heard that it's gone downhill. I don't know. I have not read them. I I read the first three. And uh, I don't know how many years ago, but I found the first one at a bookstore at a used bookstore, and I snatched it up. Um, ElfQuest, at that time in, in my life, helped me to see that you could kind of, that there was still magic in a way. I feel like ElfQuest, because after all of the crap that we had gone through, um, ElfQuest kind of showed me that good work can help you not not just escape you know mm -hmm. but really it it forces your brain to turn off certain things and elf quest and and i know that this is something that we know now you know obviously reading is a, it can be a, a, an escape mm -hmm. um but it's it was my first real experience with good conflict, different characters. Um, I loved Skywise. He was my favorite character. It was my first experience with, I, I, I'm pretty sure, I, I mean, it's comics, but it's a graphic novel. Mm -hmm. um, at least it's a, you can buy them in graphic novel form now. I'm sure that they were just comics, you know, when they first started coming out. Right. And even though I had the Excalibur stuff that I really loved, this was also the first stuff that really got me really obsessively deep into a culture and a world that had been created. And there were two cultures, these two different kind of elves, and, and just the magic and the storylines and everything taught me both that I can't escape. And it showed me that there was still magic, there was still fun there was still hope you know that yeah. that other people th th these characters they have to struggle but they can succeed yeah uh i, and I did want to point something out obviously this is this is going to be like obvious to everybody um the writer who has influenced my life the most would be holly <laughs> but because you know obviously like i've i've learned the most from you but I'm not putting you as number one because that it just it's obvious, at least to me, you know, I mean, yeah, that's well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm on here every week with you. We started the <laughs> podcast because I wanted you to be out there in the world and help other people. And yeah, I, I think that's very clear to everybody who as a writer has influenced me most. I'm a writer because of you. So I left that one out because they're, you know, the other 
the other 10. Yeah, well, because we're doing the podcast. So that one, yeah, that one you kind of, you've you've already demonstrated that one. (laughs) That, That was my number 10. It was, it's just, there's a lot of nostalgia when it comes to, to that one. And I can't pinpoint exactly like the way that you did um, with yours. What all it is is it's definitely nothing eloquent coming from me. But that you know, I, that was pretty eloquent in that that gave you back joy and life and magic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, that's that was yeah that I thought that was that was pretty compelling right there. No, <laughs> oh. yeah. Uh, so what's your number nine? My number nine is Agatha Christie. And more specifically, the Miss Marple series, um, not the Hercule Poirot series, where she made me realize how compelling um, a particular kind of series fiction, which is Unchanging World series fiction, could be. Um, I fell in love with that little village in which Miss Marple lived. Um, it had the highest murder rate on the planet for a town of that size. <laughs> Holy it's like Christ. watching Murder, She Wrote. Yes. Like, come on, guys. Angela Lansbury did it. She's always there. <laughs> She's the one who finds the body, yes. Yes, yeah, she, she killed everybody. She's a fucking serial killer. <laughs> but but I read those, and I I discovered the twist from Agatha Christie. This thing where, and I would go back and read them and reread them and reread them, especially once I was determined that I was going to be a writer, because I had to take apart the books to understand how she did it. But first, she just, she blew me away so often. I'd read through and I'd be so sure I knew what it was, who it was, and then that person would end up dead. And I'd be so sure I knew who else it was, and then something horrible would happen to that person. And then, she, then... I would see not only who it actually was who had killed these people and done horrible things to these other people and why they did it, but how Miss Marple figured it out. And then you go back through and you see these tiny, tiny clues that she presents in these various places where you don't catch it the first time. And I learned so much from reading her as a writer, but I just loved her as a reader. So she is, she is my number nine for just technical beauty in presenting complicated, twisty plots and landing them perfectly. Awesome. (laughs) Um, My number nine I found in think it was my yeah it was freshman year of high school um I was in an AP English class that was I'll just say not very well taught Mm -hmm. um yeah but god that was generous of you yes yes it was um but the and this is not me being snobby at all believe me mom knows it was it the, the teacher was very nice she was a sweet lady um we got to pick, I think, uh, certain books, and the most of the choices were interesting. I picked <laughs> um, the because she gave us a, a couple of list of basically this one was the only thing required of her was that you read one of the classics. You know that that was like just in, for the entire year, just one classic wow. for an AP English class. Yeah. So. Um, I picked The Count of Monte Cristo 
by Alexandra Dumas. Oh my god. Alexandra Dumas, whatever. Yeah. I can't I can't say it French wise, but it opened my mind to previous works. Because at this time, you know, I was fourteen. Um, I I had I had read a lot. I I had read extensively just all of these different things, but I had never really been interested in stuff like Shakespeare. And of course, one of the things we had to cover in that class was Romeo and Juliet, which she played the movie for, for an AP oh, no. class, for an AP class. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't even, you know, it was the Leonardo DiCaprio movie because he was big because Titanic had come out and all oh. the girls were swooning. Yeah. Oh. It was just, oh, that's so bad. <laughs> but it just, um, it opened my eyes to reading things that are slightly more difficult, not in an easier to understand language because you're looking at super old fiction that isn't written like today's work. It isn't, it isn't easy. It's not easy access. Mm -hmm. It's, um, and I'm not saying that the Count of Monte Cristo is a hard read. It's, it's not, but if you're constantly reading current fiction, it can be a little bit disorienting to go back and read stuff like that. But because of that, I read everything that's older that, you know, Jules Verne, um, Herman Melville. Um, I had a list of other people on here, but like, like, uh, the metamorphosis, um, God, I've just, th there's <laughs> the jungle there. There's just this huge list of books that aren't necessarily older because the jungle is not as older as as Jama but yeah. it's it's he opened me up to quote literary classics to quote classics mm -hmm. um Victor Hugo um I I just because of that one book which unfortunately the only book in our AP class I keep saying that because it drives me freaking nuts mm -hmm. was the abridged version oh. of the Count of Monte Cristo oh but the good thing is, you can imagine my excitement when I found out that that book was abridged. <laughs> there, was there was probably, more. it was, yeah, and it was horribly abridged because it was about a third of the book. Oh. So when I found the original, I was ecstatic. But because of his book, because of The Count of Monte Cristo, it opened up this entire world of history to me. And, you know, even, even silly books like, well, I can't say silly, but even books like The Secret Garden and Treasure Island and stuff like that, those yeah. were... They were fun. Those, yeah. They were the they light were, reads of their day. Yeah. Yeah. And and they they have real beauty to them and real emotion and, and or, you know, swashbuckling adventure. And you, yeah. it just, it showed me the value in older works where originally I thought, okay, well, we've gotten better as... A writing community not entirely obviously we still have bad writers mm -hmm. but we've gotten better at expressing ourselves and the way that we express ourselves like as far as plot pacing that sort of thing mm -hmm. we've, we've gotten we've advanced and then our language is different you know even even if it's an american writer writing from the past 
our language has changed. It's morphed. It's evolved. So I'd never really seen the value in older work before. And my favorite writer at the time was still you. So, <laughs> you know, and, and some of that is mom bias. You know, obviously I'm going to be, I'm, <laughs> when I was a kid, even though I read other authors, I was like, nope, my favorite mom, my, my favorite writer is my mommy. <laughs> but I had never really truly seen the, the value in older works until I read that. Yeah. And that was one of the most captivating books that, that was, I had ever read at that point. Yeah, that was a good book. Yeah, even yeah. abridged, even freaking abridged, yeah. his voice and his story managed to get through. So once I read the original, it was just amazing. Oh, yeah, and then The Three Musketeers and 30 Years Later. Oh, my God, they were so good, all of them. I loved, yeah. So, okay, good, <laughs> good choice. <laughs> all right, um, my number eight is Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes, um, and he was, again, it was a series of books that I thought were brilliant, but I loved the combination of protagonist and sidekick that you got with Sherlock Holmes as the brain and Dr. Watson as the brawn, and and this this byplay between these two guys who kind of get along and kind of don't and who do these things together and the one is is <clears throat> sort of worshipful at the same time that he's being sort of annoyed and this the this this whole interplay set in this beautiful time period where things were different and where where he was having to use really low tech to solve really complicated problems. And that influenced so much of my work and allowed me to look at ways to come up with low-tech science, which I did. I started with my very first novel, Fire in the Mist. I have yep. low-tech science in with my magic, and my, my magic is science-based, and that was, that was heavily, heavily influenced by Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> that's awesome that's that, because if you read the book you would not expect that to have been influenced by Sherlock Holmes oh no no yeah, no because I bury my sources really really well I, I pulled yeah. little bits and pieces from everything but yeah that's that's where I learned that was from reading him <laughs> that's awesome yeah um my number eight is um Wally Lamb this is uh, the writer of She's Come Undone, and more importantly, um, the first book that I read is I Know This Much It's True. Um, I was maybe 20, 19 or 20. I don't remember exactly when I picked up I Know This Much It's True. I like thick books. I, and by saying thick, I do mean two C's no K. I like thick books. That's... <laughs> That is my my preference most of the time. Um, so I saw it. I read the back. It sounded interesting. I picked it up. Um, the It's a literary book. And I had been raised by someone who was not really a fan of literary fiction. <laughs> well, yeah, so, stuff that's called literary but that's old, I loved stuff that's called yeah. literary that's current, I tend to really dislike. Yes, yes. And 
that subconsciously kind of influenced my choices for a lot of things. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. <laughs> you, you've you never said, don't read this or don't read that. Anything that we wanted to read, you're like, here, you know, mm-hmm. you've never agreed with banning books or anything either. So mm-hmm. it's, it was just a subconscious thing. And it wasn't like I was even aware because I never said literary fiction is shit. I never told anybody that. I never said it. It's just kind of like the, I never walked into that aisle because I knew I liked this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't exactly know. I think it was just this this display and his book was there. I think it was a recent, when it had come out recently. And I picked it up and I read it and it was that book is what got me into things like John Updike. And um trying to think of what else... I mean, just just a whole bunch of uh, there's there's a French book that was converted something about flowers. I wish I'd written it down, but it he got me into reading like the Mosquito Coast, which is not literary fiction, um, but it's odd. It's Mm -hmm. an odd book, and Wally Lamb's I know this much is true is literary fiction, but it was so emotional. It was so impactful. It was so there were places in there where you could really relate. And then there were also places that were just strange and bizarre. And it made me feel better about my life because there were, it, it wasn't action adventure. It wasn't, you know, a mystery. It was, it was just, this is life. And I do like literary fiction when it isn't all, when the, when the point isn't life is shit. Right. Um, so that and She's Come Undone were two. He's a beautiful writer. I love what he's done. Um, those are the only two of his that I've read. I, I've looked for other stuff. I don't know if he's got anything new out. But he is the one that, uh, that opened me up to When Rabbit Howls. Just, just these books that I wouldn't normally pick out again. Just like Dumas did. He opened my world just a little bit more. Yeah. And I think that reading that book gave me a little bit more bravery in my own writing as well. Cool. Yeah. Yes. That is really nice. Um, Okay. My next one, uh, seven on the countdown, if you're counting, is John Wyndham. Um, the Day of the Triffids, the Midwich Cuckoos. Um, he is, was um, a wonderful British science fiction writer and with a dark touch of horror in all of his stuff. Um, he wrote, I'm thinking in the 1950s and 1960s. I didn't look this up ahead of time and I probably should have. I believe his books are still in print. They are amazing. Uh, Bunches of movies have been made out of his stuff, but uh, he is simply, was simply a brilliant storyteller. Uh, And he had this way of looking at the world and and sliding you into it so that everything starts out kind of cool and then it turns sideways. And it gets strange, and it gets scary, and bad things happen, and the bad things create badder things, and you go deeper down this rabbit hole, and and everything you think you know turns out to be not 
the thing that it looks like it is. And it's, it is just brilliantly constructed fiction. And um, a lot of my dark side in my own fiction is directly attributable to John Wyndham. And to the librarian in the uh, Costa Rican Academy uh, that when I lived in Costa Rica, she was a British librarian, and she found out that I kind of liked, she, well, she found out that I kind of liked science fiction, so she introduced me to John Wyndham and to um, The Hobbit. And Oh. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I was just gone forever from that point on. So, and God, I wish I could remember her name. She was magnificent. <laughs> That was a good number seven. I, I really like that, especially with the horror elements. I think that's cool. And it's also really bizarre because my number seven is a twofer. It is R.L. Stein and Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. A, 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 an odd two writers to put together, I guess. But um, both I discovered as a child you know, R.L. Stein did the Babysitter series. He did the Goosebump stories, which, you know, Goosebumps, that's... And, and we're talking... I grew up when they were coming out. Like, I mean, I know they're still coming out now. He, he's got to be the author of, like, five million books. <laughs> but at the time, you know, Goosebumps was fairly new. Mm-hmm. And, uh... Yeah, we were going out and hunting bookstores for the next new one. Yes, yes, yeah. I remember that. And I remember them so well. And they introduced me to a particular brand of horror. Um, they they altered my life for sure because other than, Mark is the one that introduced me to horror films and the joy that comes from those. Like, obviously, I had seen horror films before. I'm terrified of clowns because fucking it. Thank you, Pennywise. <laughs> This is not even Stephen King. It's, um, good Lord, what's his name? Tim Curry. There yeah. you go. He's, yeah. Um, but it's, R.L. Stein gave me a certain amount of joy to horror. So he made it fun to be scared. And he had those mysteries in there too. And there was always this, this twist at the end, mm-hmm. which taught me that twists are cool, but at the same time, I don't like the twist where it makes everything okay. <laughs> that tends to be his twist, which is great for most readers. But with my life, the way it had already started to turn out, I already knew that the twist wasn't always going to make things okay. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it taught me a lot. And I, I liked the fact that he had a twist in there. It just wasn't dark enough for me. So the next step was Edgar Allan Poe. There you go. Um, his writing is both obviously beautiful oh god and dark and enriching and finding it as a kid it was the first time that a story actually terrified the shit out of me it was the telltale heart oh yeah that one absolutely terrified the shit out of me mhm oh i <laughs> and, loved that one yeah i mean all of his works, I, I, I know that there are a couple that I di- that I haven't read, a couple, but all of his works are great, but that is the one that stands out in my memory. It was the first one I ever read by him, and 
like I said, it terrified me and it taught me that fiction can scare the shit out of people. Mm-hmm. That I might never write anything as terrifying as that. But there is this vast range of emotional impacts that you can have on your reader. And I loved it. It, it was like, yes, this is what I wanted R.L. Stein to do for me when I was younger. <laughs> Yeah. I wanted to be truly terrified. Yeah, yeah. And he nailed that, man. Yeah. Yeah, he, he owned terrified. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I had the complete collection of of his works and you guys both read it. Or or at least I, pieces of it. Yeah, I don't I don't remember um when I read I just know I was young mm-hmm. and that I've read it and it just terrified oh yeah he's awesome (laughs) so that was my seven okay um my six this is going back a ways now is roger lancelin green another british author um he wrote king arthur and his knights of the round table the adventures of robin hood and oh my god and these were these were in my high school library as books for boys and that yeah, you missed the eye roll because oh, you guys are listening to a podcast. But. Yeah, that bugged the crap out of me. Yeah. And so I, I took them out because there was just, I wanted heroes. And writing finding heroes in fiction written for women back in the 70s was just <laughs> impossible. It was just, and, and it's still really hard. It is still very difficult to find female heroes in anything. But, I remember you were very, very insistent that I read Harriet the Spy. Yes. And I think that that was one of the reasons was because she was, she was kind of a hero. She was a writer. She was a hero in a way. Yeah. She was, she was, yeah. That's another and, book that I read here in this town, in this school, in fifth grade, in the library, here. A freaking and, female main character in the 70s. Yeah. 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 And that was, yeah, but... But for me, these books gave me heroes. They gave me King Arthur. They gave me um, Robin Hood. They, but but with a world just dropped in solidly around them. The when you're reading Roger Lancelin Green, you are reading England, and you are reading England back in this time period when there were knights and there were. Um, bandits and outlaws and and there were forests full of of the king's deer and where there were just these these amazing world conflicts but with the world a little smaller than it is today with technology that was low (laughs) low technology you know iron was a big deal steel was not around yet Um, with with these amazing battles and these these conflicts and this gorgeous language where every word was just perfect and and from him i gained a lot of my love for world building not all of it not all of it but a lot of my love for world building came from reading specifically those two books king arthur and his knights of the round table and the adventures of robin hood because I wanted to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can see um and uh, like 
I I own the King Arthur book. I haven't read it yet. Um, the Robin Hood, my exposure, unfortunately, to Robin Hood Don't has been either Kevin Costner. Oh God, you said it. Oh God. Or or this one's probably worse. Carrie Elwes. No, Carrie Elwes was actually pretty spot on. And he it was, at it was least a could do a British accent. Yes, yes, that's true. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Kevin Costner. I, oh, my oh. God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh my I God. like him. I like him. But the idea, the the joke in Family Guy, how does he keep getting work? Yeah. I, I can understand it. I actually like Kevin Costner, but. I liked Kevin Costner in Bull Durham. Yeah, I know, which you wouldn't let us watch because it was too raunchy. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. You were young. No, that's, that's <laughs> yes. fine. Yeah, we were very young. Yeah. But there was, I liked him in a lot of stuff. He's not a great actor. <laughs> but no. there's something about him that you can watch. It's not, like, my, my personal, personal I don't want to watch him is um, Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> just, he drives me nuts, but I know a lot of other people love him. Um, but yeah, so I've written down to read Robin Hood because, you know, I've either got Kevin Costner and um, I... This no, will, was... yeah, this will erase the Kevin Costner from your consciousness. Well, no, no I don't know it that can't it will. Erase mine, but <laughs> but at least this will give you a Robin Hood to love. Yeah, I well, I don't hate Kevin Costner. It's just I, like I'm one of those weird people that liked Waterworld. Um, but yeah, I know it's okay, Mom. <laughs> I have weird taste. Um, but yeah, so. I, I have written down to to read that because I would love to actually read it and like it because yeah. um, Carrie always was hilarious. <laughs> he was. He was. And they managed to get the story across pretty well in that version of it. That was Mel Brooks, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Mel Brooks is, is usually pretty good about shit like Robin that. Hood and Men in Tights. Yes. <laughs> um, my six is, again, It's a this one's a twofer. It's Bruce Coville and Roald Dahl. Nice. Oh, God. Yeah, Bruce Coville. Oh. Yeah. Bruce Coville. Now, this was before he did this. uh, But but just so that everybody knows, when we were homeless and living with with the aforementioned Walter Spence, um, (laughs) mom was just struggling and i mean if you if you've ever been a single mother with two broken kids abused all this you know horrible shit um with struggling because of you know income and stuff then you would you would understand um but there were some writers who donated to help out Mm -hmm. who were like here you know and bruce coville was one of them and that made me cry because he was is you know still like he's one of my favorite authors yeah um goblins in the castle he's got the monster series he he showed me all of these different ways to look at the world he showed me that you can write completely different kinds of stories you know i know that he's he is a kid's author um but that never limited the kinds of stories that he he wrote. He's got a ton out there. He's a very prolific guy. And his his way of looking at the world um it's just amazing. There's there's so much humor in it. There are um 
emotional moments. There are scary moments. Um, Goblins in the Castle, for some reason, just stands out as one of my favorite of his books. Even though he had like he did aliens, he did monsters, he did ghosts. His his uh, he's got like a quote Halloween series. It's not it's not actually a Halloween series, but if you if you've got kids and you want to give them some Halloween books, these are great. Um, if you want to scare the shit out of them, <laughs> there's um, the um, at least I don't know. Kids are tougher nowadays, but back. When I was a kid, um, Mark and I had scary stories to tell in the dark, which is apparently now a movie. And oh my God, we're both geeking out so hard. But um, that 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 was some terrifying shit, especially with the very inky, amazing drawings in there. But Bruce Coville has this, has a really good series of of books that are you know generally tend to be a little bit younger audience. Um, Roald Dahl on the opposite spectrum kind of than Bruce Coville because I was reading them both around the same time Mm -hmm. he showed me that bad things happen to kids too kids can be bad bad people too um and that there are obstacles and being like honest and being a good person is is important but yeah he just it it impacted the way that i saw um life and i could relate you know because bad things had happened to to us and a lot of the fiction i read there were these families that were sort of perfect you know there were these kids that had loving parents and, and not that I didn't have a loving parent. Sorry for my cat folks. God. <laughs> but um it was there there were these families with, you know, big huge families with grandparents and there were these families, you know, where both of the parents were normal and you know, everybody had jobs and everybody was happy and <clears throat> the adventure came from life and different circumstances. Well, Raw Doll stuff showed that life um, wasn't like that for everybody. You know, yeah. uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, Matilda, mm-hmm. the witches, <laughs> that they showed these, he showed these stories that had conflict within the family already built in. It showed things that weren't perfect. And... I think it's underrated. It's an underrated thing to expose your child to this kind of of writing, this kind of life, this kind of darker side, because you want to protect your kids, because you want them to to feel like everything is okay, everything's perfect, you know. Um, but I think that setting your kid up for that mentality, you're they're going to face a lot of things in their life that doesn't fit that that ideal and they're not going to know how to handle it or they're going to think that they're they're going to feel isolated or that it's their fault yep or that is their fault so if you if you give them this fiction and they read this stuff and they know that stuff like this happens it's i'm not saying it makes it easy to handle i'm just making it it's less of a surprise it's it's um 
and they have a basic knowledge that stuff like this is there. Yeah, and it shows that it can be survivable. Yeah, and Raw Dahl's stuff showed me that while what happened wasn't okay, it wasn't, you know, normal, quote, normal, that I don't believe is a thing anyway, um, it showed me that, you know, shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> Even to kids. And no one is spared rough times. And it just, it was, but, you know, being a good person, while it doesn't always mean that everything's going to go happy, it's, it's the point is, you know, being a good person can get you through a lot. And I think that is, is really what a lot of his stuff taught me. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Okay, uh, let's see. That takes us to five. We're mm-hmm. halfway through. Um, <laughs> and mine, uh, my number five is Anne McCaffrey uh, for the Dragon Riders of Pern specifically because she mixed science fiction and fantasy and spaceships and dragons. And uh, that was at the very heart of it. My my riff on her my my first novel was taking a a different tack at the kind of world she'd built and building in a science fiction in the middle of fantasy novel novel with uh fire in the mist and uh that whole world was my take on this thing that this idea that she had come up with that science fiction and dragons could be in the same universe and uh i it took me three books to get to the dragons and by then people had kind of lost interest in the series to to the sci-fi yeah yeah well the the thing that you can see is if you go into it knowing how you meant it to go you could kind of see hints at sci-fi because um the horses that fly Mm -hmm. they are created to do so but they are not perfect the their landings are rough and they can't breed and so so you can see some of that science sneaking in right where i was i had people who were using magic to do genetic engineering yeah and yeah and it was this i had and from the very beginning that was what it was going to be it was going to be and and once you got past the delmuri barrier which was this thing that had kind of gotten into place and screwed things up badly. There were dragons living with people on the other side of, of the world, and they had this whole other series of cultures and all of this, this, this bi-species civilization where it was yeah. humans and dragons, but not dragon riders. It was, it was because the dragons were had their own language, own written languages and stuff. And I had all of that stuff in the first three books, but, but it just, but that, and that was influenced by Anne McCaffrey. Oh, that was massively influenced by Anne McCaffrey. That was, <laughs> that was that. And the fact that she said, this is what I am doing to pay the bills so I can stay home with my kids. And yeah. she wrote that in an article someplace, I think in writer's digest. And I went, Oh, <laughs> that right there I could probably figure out a way to do that and it took me seven years after I read that article to do it but that was that was my influence there was yeah. Anne McCaffrey said that and I went okay there you go 
Yeah, and as a note, if if you haven't listened to some of the previous podcasts, Holly does everything on hard mode. So when you get a three book deal, don't quit your day job until you're <laughs> absolutely sure, because that set mom up for the oh. the hard you know the video game hard life yes. on hard mode oh. on extreme hard mode extreme. whatever. Yeah. Extreme hard mode. <laughs> my number five is my nonfiction. And that's John Tolan's Hitler. Um, I, my exposure to history at this point had been history class. And if anybody has been through a public school history class, it's dry, it's boring. You have to already like history which I know you tried your damnedest to help us like and enjoy history, but I hadn't yet caught the bug. Yeah. And because of John Tolan's Hitler, which is um, his kind is his biography and kind of like this, this just this massive tome that I picked up from Barnes and Noble on one of our trips. And I still remember you were very surprised that I got it. Um, it was absolutely fascinating. Um, it opened my eyes to the impact of history, to the impact of all the little things in a person's life. Um, it changed my view of history, period, into, from this yeah, yeah, don't, you know, we're doomed to repeat it if we don't know it, blah, blah, blah. And this boring, dry, stupid textbooks full of dates that you're supposed to memorize and names that you're supposed to memorize, but nothing interesting. No context. No context. Yeah. To um, absolutely just imperative knowledge. Yeah. Things that, that move us and strike us and change us and evolve us are are such a, a huge part of human nature and and human evolution and it, it that turned me on to research and the love of learning for life it took me a while to realize where it came from um other than the fact that it's it's probably a genetic thing too from you <laughs> i probably do get it from you because other kids could have picked it up at 13 or 14 i think it was 14 because i think that that was my what i picked for history when i was homeschooling yeah that was one of the things um but it it changed a very very big part of me and it is why i now read as much nonfiction as fiction, um, whether it's true crime, whether it's, you know, America, American history, British history, history of just towns, mm -hmm. um, chemistry books, like I've been trying to work my way through one, books on quantum physics, which still <laughs> over my head and also seems really counterintuitive in places there's just there's I will read anything now and I think that that book I know there's a lot of books out there by that that are called Hitler um but this is specifically John Tolan's his Hitler because um there's another writer that did an amazing job that was there he was a reporter 
and I can't believe I can't remember his name, but we don't have the time for me to keep looking this stuff up. <laughs> um, but he was an amazing writer, and it was an amazing book, and very, very in-depth. But specifically, John Tolan and his Hitler um, is what opened my eyes to history and research and the love of learning. Awesome. Awesome. That's a good one. All right, so that brings us to number four. And my number four is Isaac Asimov, and an American science fiction writer, and with a long, long history and many, many books. He had more than 100 of, of I think, just nonfiction, and then, and then a ton of fiction as well. Um, but the thing that really got me of his was the Foundation series. It was epic. It was brilliantly plotted. It dropped little things in the beginning that worked their way through the middle to the end in this massive three-book tome in <sighs> which things that you read in the first book still mattered in the third book and still were having repercussions and still were tying things in. And it was purely science world-building, but it was really, really good, hard science world-building. And it was really good twists. I know a lot of readers find him a little dry. I didn't. I just fell into those books and lived there. And they were, they were one of the very best things I got from the science fiction book club when I was a member. I was about 15 or 16 when I read this. And um, it, was, it was one of the specials for that month. So I got it for like a reduced price. And I, I read it and read it and reread it. It's probably the trilogy that I read almost as often as the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I read 21 times. No, 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 no. I didn't go quite that overboard. I read it 13 times. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say I yeah. thought it was 13. 13 times, yes. Yes, and I didn't read <laughs> Foundation, uh, the Foundation series 13 times, but I read it a lot. <laughs> Um, my number four is, um, it's, again, it's a twofer and I'm sorry, but it's a, it, th there's a reason. Um, Shel Silverstein introduced me to, um, the love of poetry, um, and where the sidewalk ends, that sort of stuff. If, if you haven't gotten that as for your kids and you have kids, freaking get them. Shel Silverstein is And if you don't amazing. have kids, get them for yourself. Yeah, seriously, they're still like they're hilarious. Yeah, and you you read them and they still work even even as an adult. And sometimes they work on a different level that you didn't understand when you were a kid, which is good writing. Um, he showed me the impact that very few words can have. He he shows a vast range of emotions within his work, and his work is so short. At least these, you know, where the sidewalk ends and uh, light in the attic, that sort of. When when you read them, you can laugh and be emotionally impacted. Um, a lot of his work, like some of the stories, they come from pain. Um, they're hilarious, but there's some that are very emotional and mm -hmm. deeply impacting. And he just, he, he he was one of the first writers because he gave them to me when I was very young. I was maybe six or seven. I think it was right after the divorce. Mm -hmm. So I must have been six. Yeah. And I think your thing was, well, it's funny. You know, it'll, it'll, 
it'll be good. And it was, it was funny, but it was also very emotional. And he was, I think probably the first author to really rock my world, you know, like <laughs> brain explosion kind of, and in such a simple way. And yet there is, there probably was a natural ability for him for that. I'm not sure. I can't judge because I haven't, I don't know, but that's the kind of humor and intensity and meaning that is very hard to get, mm -hmm. especially in such incredibly short works. Yeah. Yeah. He was wonderful. Um, yeah. Which because of him, I, I liked, you know, cause his stuff is kind of poet poetry in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they're just little stories. Sometimes they rhyme. Sometimes they're poetry. Sometimes they're not. But because of that, um, I was open to poetry. So when I read Walt Whitman's Oh, Captain, My Captain, I was maybe 9 or 10. And that struck me hard. Like, I didn't know it was about Abraham Lincoln. Um, and that is one of the timeless pieces. Like, you read it and it still strikes me. And when we watched uh, Dead Poet Society when I was 13, um, it made that moment more impactful because I had read Oh, Captain, My Captain when I was younger. Yeah. Um, that opened me up to Walt Whitman, and Walt Whitman showed me this just, again, wide variety of emotions and good and bad works <laughs> and um i wouldn't say bad but you know like less impactful works less, less yeah less important yeah. <laughs> um he's there's some really amazing stuff in leaves of grass and but but oh captain my captain showed me the impact that poetry can have it showed me the impact that writing can have because you can get things out on the page in a very beautiful meaningful striking way and so between Shel Silverstein and Walt Whitman, those two really are kind of gelled in my head as as the ability to impact with with very little, yeah, you know, text. Yeah, that it doesn't have to be long to be meaningful. Yeah, yeah, and that you can really get a statement across. That you can really say what you mean in in a way that is relatable but you don't have to point out the specifics. I had no idea it was about Abraham Lincoln. I just knew it was a very, very strong emotional story. You know, you can, you can relate to certain things without it being about the same person. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, well, that's cool. And, and yeah, that's, those are, those are really, really good choices <laughs> and for a really good reason. All right. Now I come to my first twofer. Okay. This is number three. The first, the first one is Theodore Sturgeon, um, More Than Human, Some of Your Blood, Venus Plus X, bunch of other stories. Uh, is that God body? Yeah. Okay. Um, and he was just astounding. He just, I, 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 okay, and the second one, I have to do these both together, Clifford Simak with City, Waystation, Time and Again, and a ton of short stories. These two authors are very different, but they both wrote at the same time, and they both gave you two completely different ways at looking at being human and what it means to be human. 
and you you can read one without the other but if you read them both together at the same time which i was doing you you have these two amazing viewpoints on this is this is what it means to be human this is what it means for a life to matter this is what it means for you to step into the world as a human being and live what you believe and offer something good to the world and and give a damn and have it count for something and um i i love both of those guys and they gave me between the two of them they gave me a lot of my themes for my fiction the importance of being a good human being of fighting for what's right of of understanding, of taking the time to figure out what's right and not just believe what everyone else around you is seeing, but to actually look at things and look at actions and consequences and outcomes and say, okay, well, if, if this happens and this follows, then what will the outcome of that be? And then not accepting what everyone says is good just because they say it, but understanding what effect it will actually have. And they, they changed my whole life. I mean, it wasn't just that they affected my writing, but they affected who I am as a human being. And between the two of them, uh, they were some of the most influential fiction I read when I was in my, my early teens. And then, you know, later, because I read they were still both producing um, into my early 20s, and I picked up everything I could find by either one of them. Um, and I'm actually not sure on the age uh, at when they both died, uh, but... As, as long as there was new stuff by them coming out, I was getting it, and I still will pick up collections by them if I find new things. Because, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's, you know, if I find things that I hadn't read before. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, we will list all of these authors in the show notes just so that you guys can also t t check them out. I don't think anybody's going to need to, like, mine aren't exactly <laughs> as, as um, y yours are probably a little bit more obscure. Um, uh, yeah, a little than bit. But, you know, but then Bruce I was Colville. reading at a long period before you were. Yes. So, and yes, not before just before I was you even were alive. reading, but before yes. you were. Yeah. So. Yes. <laughs> um, my number three is, oddly enough, the same in a way. It's um, another twofer, but it's also, they have to be mentioned together, and they were influencing my, my teenage years and 20s. It's Stephen King and Dean Koontz. Nice. Um, yeah. Matt introduced me to Dean Koontz. Um, and again, this was when we didn't have a lot of money, uh, when, did we ever have a lot of money? No, we didn't. Not ever. <laughs> so this was, um, but books were always like an okay item for the priority list. It was always like, okay, well, you know, books are important. So, yes. We have um, a little extra money so you can buy a book. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a book. Yeah. It was a book. And, and Mark and I would go in there and it was like a book. So we had to pick a good one. And this is back, you know, if we have any super young listeners, um, there were these things called bookstores where you would walk <laughs> into them and then there were all these books laid out. No, I'm kidding. I mean, there's still bookstores, but um, it's Stephen King and Dean Koontz are kind of intertwined for, I know a lot of people, um, but they're very, very different authors. They are. Um, the first thing I read by Dean Koontz was The Watchers, Watchers, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then 
um, it was just a slew of other things. But bad, the bad place is what really s- struck me. And then Lightning um, mm-hmm. was an amazing book. And he was, he and Stephen King. So Stephen King is a very, very different writer. And I prefer Stephen King to Dean Koontz. Because I, I like, I, I'm one of those people that I don't care if he goes on and on for six pages about a lamp because he makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. It drives Tony nuts that he goes back and forth between two characters and he talks about a piece of lint on the on the carpet for, you know, six paragraphs. There's a reason for it. He, he makes everything interesting and fascinating and his short stories are amazing. The Walk is one of the most incredible stories um, that I had read, you know, it, it, it's still, it, it's a novella, but it was listed in this book of four or three, um, stories and it was horrifying. Um, the stand, mm. I don't know how many times I reread that because we were, we had limited amount of book owning at the time. Um, we, when, when it was one book, we would read the same book. It's like, when you guys bought us movies, we would watch the same movie over mm-hmm. and over. I can't tell people how many times I've seen Air Force One, but I can quote <laughs> literally every line in the movie. Tony thought he was going to get me, so he, he he does this thing where he'll play quotes from movies and in while I'm in the kitchen or something, and I just call out what movie it is because we watched movies over and over again. Mm-hmm. Well, he thought he was, he was being a smartass, so he played the first couple of notes of the intro music to Air Force One <clears throat> because I had so far gotten every single one line, one word quote. <laughs> Holy shit. I knew all of the inflections. So he paid the first two notes and paused and said, hey, Poppet, what's that? Air Force One. He was like, are you fucking kidding me? It was one of the very few times where he was actually animated. He, he's not an animated fella. He could not believe that I knew that one. And uh, when his son came to stay with us, he did the exact same thing. He, he pushed play. He's like, watch this. Push play. Two notes. What is this? <laughs> but um, Stephen King and Dean Koontz, they are the books that we read over and over and over again. At least me. Mm-hmm. That I read over and over and over again. And I learned a lot about um, emotional characters, um, the way to really build up these intense moments mm-hmm. um the the story frame i guess yeah and especially with stephen king's short stories i found a love for short stories that goes on to this day and i like writing them too um okay so that takes us to number two and my number two is one writer it is roger zelazny and Of all of the stuff he has written, there are two specific books that absolutely rocked my world, changed the way I viewed fiction and how you can tell fiction and how you can write fiction and what you can put in fiction, changed the way I understood what fiction was. And those are Roadmarks and A Night in the Lonesome October. Roadmarks is a time travel novel, and it is told from the point of view of the same character at two separate times with these two times interspersed with each other and with them communicating with each other in their future life and past life 
through a book. And it is it is it was the most bewildering thing that I, I started into it and it started with chapter two. And then it went to chapter one. And then it went to chapter two. And then it went to chapter one. And then all the way through the book. And I I read it and as I started it started falling into place for me and then it got deeper and it got better and it got more complex. I must have read that book a hundred times. It is just amazing. And it shows what you can do with a structure. The other thing, A Night in the Lonesome October, where, I mean, it shows what you can do with a structure if you are fucking brilliant and an amazing writer and, and can just do stuff that nobody else can do. And that was Roger Zelazny. But it, it taught me so much about what structure is and can be and how you are not tied to a conventional structure. And if you're willing to walk away from it, then you can do something amazing. Okay, so that was that book. That, that was Roadmarks. The, the next one, A Night in the Lonesome October, is told from the point of view of Jack the Ripper's dog. <laughs> and again, it is an astonishing, brilliant book where he takes the point of view of a dog and he makes it doggy. You, you understand who Jack the Ripper is from his dog who likes him because he's yeah. his dog. Yeah. And, uh, who, and, and you're watching things happen in a time period in history through this weird alternate viewpoint with stuff happening all around. And it is, again, it is just brilliant. And from that book, I learned a lot about who could be a viewpoint character. And I have used viewpoint characters like cats and dogs and um, have, have given them, and I have been very careful. Uh, I had a viewpoint character of a cat in my, f in my very first novel. And I don't know if that was before or after I read A Night in a Lonesome October because I don't know when that book came out. But I know that uh, I learned so much from doing non-human viewpoint characters from that uh, that I have been willing to use them other times. <laughs> um, he was, but but Roger Zelazny, everything he wrote was brilliant. But those two books just completely changed who I am as a writer, and and were just fun to read. They were so fun to read. Okay, so that's my two. Um, my number two is a later find in my life. Mark told me about him when I was 23. George R. R. Martin. I know I've mentioned him a whole bunch in here. Um, he was influential be for the same reason I think your number three or four was because he showed me this epic storyline that how to um, keep characters going and how to build the stories and how to keep digging deeper and digging deeper and how no character is inexpendable. I mean, every single character can all of a sudden drop dead and it it he taught me about in in my mind you know like I had read other books before but this was the first series that was truly epic and full and I know other people might find him you know dra dragging on a bit with certain things but I don't every every one that I've read and I've only read I, th I think the the first four I still have the the what other two I don't what? know how many there are now. I bailed at three. Okay. Well, I just, I absolutely adore it. I, I haven't found any parts where 
um, it's broken to me or it's boring or anything. It, it involves the hell out of my brain and I'm just in there. And this is what I wanted to do with another series that I have had and wanted to write since I was 14. Mm -hmm. um, when I saw an, uh, Dawn of the Dead. Because I'd seen Night of the Living Dead. I'd seen Day of the Dead. I've seen a lot of really <laughs> weird zombie books and, or movies. A lot of of the deads. Yes, yes. M many, many zombie films. Um, and Mark gave me this uh, book. Well, he didn't give it to me. He lent it to me, and I happen to still have it. The <sighs> <laughs> Mammoth Book of Zombies or something like that. Um, I kind of liberated it from his... Um, ownership i suppose i've i've told him about it i told him, you do you want it back he's like no. what no it's fine <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah when i read that book it was it was over i've i've read all sorts of zombie books i've um i had the the walking dead the first two or three graphic novels um when they first came out until i hit financial hard times and had to not get more of those yeah um and was very excited when the series came out and tony bought me a lot okay two years ago he bought me the entire collection um that but it's still outcoming but it, to me i had I, i've been writing this story and i've been putting new things in and i tried to do a nano for it three times and or two times and i've i've been putting these zombie stories aside for this one world I want it to be this huge, epic, just monster piece. And I've told you about this. Mm -hmm. And um, I have so many different stories. And I just, I want to start it from before the crash. A lot of places, they start it after, mm -hmm. you know. And I have read some that started during or before, which is great. You know, it's not a unique idea. But I specifically want to start it a little bit before everything happens and then just have everything go on into this almost a new world order kind of thing. And reading George R. R. Martin showed me that it is possible to put all of these things that I have been putting aside into one story. And he gave me the courage to really start trying to, to gather all the source material, put everything together, research things, because his shit takes years mm -hmm. and years and and include zombies his does mm -hmm. not the the song of ice and fire mm -hmm. series those those the, those are not zombies they're not no, no those are not zombies and we're gonna get some some major clap back for some from some from people here they're <laughs> just just letting you guys know to a zombie person, to a person who absolutely loves zombies, what are they called? The uh, the, fr the the frozen people. There's yeah. a name for them. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> Fuck me, man. Our brains. Yeah. But yeah, those 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 are more like possessed dead people. <laughs> <laughs> they're 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 not they're not because I'm trying not to spoil something too. Okay, but they're, they're all right. Not, then just slide right on by. I never yeah. said it. It never happened. No, no, no. Okay. It's it's gonna keep going. I mean, it's it's everybody's watched the HBO series. Apparently, I I I, I know I was following his his live journal, and Matt was like, "Yeah, that's never gonna happen." And then bam, and then it exploded, which is great. 
for George R. R. Martin. But, um, yeah, I'm just, for anyone who hasn't seen the HBO series, I haven't, for anyone who hasn't read all of the books, I'm just saying they're not technically zombies. That I will, I will, I will argue that being a, a George Romero fan and a zombie phobe or a zombie, <laughs> zombie file or whatever you would call it. Um, <laughs> but George R. R. Martin showed me that what I wanted to do that felt so hard to do, I could do. And it's okay if it takes me a decade to get it all done. I want to put it all together and then release it. Yeah, there you go. That's a cool, that's a cool passion project. Yeah. All right. Okay, so we are down to the last one. This is my number one most influential writer. And this one is influential for both both fiction and nonfiction to me. And a lot of you are already going to know who this is because it's not the first time he's been mentioned. But I'm going to mention his fiction first, specifically Matt Scudder, anything that stars Matt Scudder and anything that stars Bernie Rodenbar, and his name is Lawrence Block. And I read those books starting in high school. Um, We were living pretty close to East Liverpool back then, still in Ohio, and they were coming out new at the time. Um, Well, the Bernie Rodenbar books, I think, were already out, but the Matt Scudder, no, the Bernie Rodenbar books were coming out new at the time. Matt Scudder wasn't around yet. And I was reading Bernie Rodenbar. And I discovered that Bernie Rodenbar is a thief. Okay? He's, but he's not a bad guy. He's, he has a little problem with other people's property. But he has, um, yeah, he has a little problem with other people's property. But, uh yeah, <laughs> apparently. Um, yeah, I know. But um, he had, he, he is overall a good guy. And he keeps in his purloining of things, tripping across corpses while he's stealing stuff. And, and it was somebody who isn't exactly a, a good guy, but who isn't a bad guy either because he was able to, you know, work with friends on the police force and stuff like this to, I mean, he was not an anti-hero. He was, he was a genuine guy. He, to the best of my knowledge, he didn't kill people. Um, I read, you know, I read a hell of a lot of these books. I don't know that I have read all of them. Um, cause you know, I just haven't been reading a lot of new fiction lately, but anyway, the other thing that, that, this gave me besides being able to look at characters who were not on the right side of the law as still being good characters and good guys uh, was his best friend who was from the very beginning a bookstore owner and a lesbian and this was something that was just right there in the books and this was the first time I had ever seen a lesbian character in fiction and prior to that the only lesbians and the only the only gay people I knew were the ones in my family. So this was, hey, hey, you can put gay people in your fiction and they can be written just as people. It doesn't have to be a thing. They're just people who are in there who are friends with other people and who do things that are cool and who help to solve crimes and who and who are but and that affected from the very, very first 
every single book I have ever written because because of Lawrence Block and because of his very good treatment of the lesbian bookstore owner who is Bernie Rodenbar's best friend, um, I have included uh, mixed races and uh, people of different sexualities. So yeah, so that, that, that allowed me to bring all of these people I loved from my life into my fiction and, and to just put them in there as just regular characters, not as a statement, but just as people who are doing shit. Um, it, for, for example, uh, the Moat Mage in um, Fire in the Mist is a lesbian. Um, in uh, Hunting the Corrigan's Blood, Badger is bi and, and uh, actively bi and considerably promiscuous, and it was part of the problem that he and Katie couldn't ever quite get their relationship to work. Um, but it was, it was bringing these people that I cared about into my fiction and allowing them just to be characters and allowing them to have, have important roles in the story that had absolutely nothing to do with their race or, or their gender or their preferences. And um, I appreciated the hell out of that because it opened up the whole wide world to me and let me write about everybody I knew. In, and and write about them in a, a, a loving and caring fashion because that's what he did first. And God damn it, it made me so happy when I read it. Okay, so the other one for me who was so influential was Matt Scudder. And Block wrote him as this cop who was had been on the police force who in the middle of a robbery did a, a legitimate righteous shooting but the bullet bounced and accidentally killed a little girl her name was uh Estralita something i think Estralita rodriguez it comes back in a number of the books and he he quit he couldn't be a police officer anymore because even though he was found you know innocent of any crime in in her death um because he had done everything right and it just you know shit happens he couldn't live with it. He became an alcoholic. He lived in a rooming house. He just, he just kind of rolled up in a ball and drank his way into a stupor. And, but from time to time, friends would come to him or people would be referred to him as someone who could help them off the books. Someone, the police force was too swamped to investigate this or that particular thing. And, you know, they could pay him a little, and he would help them figure out what had happened. And through the course of this long series of books, you watch him going from this guy who is just utterly devastated, a, dr a serious drunk, constantly, you know, he drinks he, and, and is constantly drinking, to discovering that uh, he has to get sober, to joining Alcoholics Anonymous to going on the wagon, to falling off the wagon, to going on the wagon, to meeting a woman that he can fall in love with, to having a, a, another woman that he cared about being murdered, to having through over these years, this character grows 
and changes and his whole life is this compelling thing and every single story can be read as a standalone book you can pick him up at any point and read the story and everything in it will make sense but if you read them from the start to the finish it is this long brilliant epic of a man's life and of this man who gets his gets his life back and i don't think he ever goes back to being a cop i'm a couple of books behind on this one too mm-hmm. but um but there is there is just this genius in how carefully these things are put together and how lightly the little tiny bits and hooks of the past are put in so that the stuff you need to know that happened years ago it's not this damn cut and paste block of text that goes into every book that says okay well this is who this character is this is it's just this this beautiful intricate delicate little introduction to the character and you can you can know him first as a sober guy but if you pick up a the first book and read it after that you can read the very first book and see him as an alcoholic down on his absolute last thread just you know just right at the edge of of just taking himself out and you you can it, it, it's genius. It is genius. And it made me want to do that. It made me want to be able to write an ongoing series in which every book stands alone, but in which every story is part of this larger whole that read from, from first to last just runs fluidly. And I have tried it with every damn series that I've written. And in every single one of them, they got canceled after three books, um, or in the case of the the secret texts, after four. Um, and so now I am putting together two, well, one series, two series. Yeah, you because I Katie. want to write Caden yeah. Drake, but then I also want to write the Ohio novels, yeah. and those will be, if I if I can pull it off, if I'm good enough. Those will be that. that. That they are books that each one can be picked up at any point. You can read them out of order or you can read them from beginning to end. And every single thing will hang together without beating you over the head with the same block of text that introduces the characters every single time. Yeah, and just to, just to let our listeners take note of something that you just said. Holly just said, if she is good enough, there is always room to grow as a writer there is no perfection there is no I'm the best there is no I know everything not even for her who teaches she's it's it is a I think part of being a writer and being a good one is a love of lifelong learning yeah you know and that's yeah yeah exactly now that's part one of Lawrence Block so before you get to your number one um because you well before you get to the second half of your number one um because we should have started with me so that we could have ended with you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and put in my number one. It's not as deep or emotional or impactful, I think, as you. But mine is Ayn Rand. Um, the, I, I, again, I was, I was impacted subconsciously by your preference of no literary fiction. And I know that you specifically said you hadn't read her you didn't you know you you knew she was one of those ones that they tell you in college to read and this and that but you're you you read what you 
like and you don't like literary fiction. Um, I, I have, since your recommendation, read everything she's written, yes. by the way. But yes. But yes. Yes, yes. I was, um, well, not because of my recommendation, yeah. though. Matt, Matt, no, Matt read it. Right. Matt read The Fountainhead oh. or Atlas Shrugged. And then, and then you read it. Right, because he recommended it because you recommended it. So because of your recommendation, I have read everything she's written. Because you're like, oh, Matt read it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just surprised that it got to Matt because I recommended it to you. And then, I guess you talked to Matt about it and Matt picked mm -hmm. it up, which was pretty cool. Um, I started with The Fountainhead. I've read other books, uh, The Virtue of Selfishness, which is nonfiction. I've read Anthem, which was very good. Um, I have a problem with reading her work quickly because I don't want... The, the, she's a very limited author. Yeah. She is not Lawrence Block. She is not Bruce Coville. She is not, you know... Um, Stephen King, Dean Koontz. There's not a million stories out there. No, so you um, got to kind of stretch them out and make them last. Yeah. I have not read everything she has written. <laughs> I own everything she has written. And it took me 10 years to get through The Fountainhead um, because I didn't want it to end. Um, that is the first novel and the only novel that I have ever done that with. Stretch it out. Mm -hmm. um, I think she is... An amazing writer. I understand she is a uh, polarizing figure. I understand there's a lot of um, controversy when it comes to her. There's a lot of um, people that like to point out how she didn't live up to her own standards. But we are all contradictions. Every single one of us has some sort of contradicting feature. Um, uh, and it's not about her. The reason she's on my list is because of her writing. Not yeah. only was it beautiful and the sentence structure and the way she described things and the passion that she took on for every single one of of these these characters she wrote about what mattered to her. Um well I found her when I was 21. A friend just offhandedly made some smart-ass remark about how it was a difficult read and, you know, he, he owned it because it was one of the ones that you were supposed to read, but he he couldn't really get into it and because I, I, I was looking for new recommendations. And he was just, he's like, it's, it's a very difficult read. It's probably above what you're looking for. You should blah, blah, Ooh. blah. Yeah. Um, Ooh, you were reading books more, more difficult than that when you were 12. Yes, yes. Uh, oh. He didn't know me very well. Yeah, okay. He, well, he was well. just, I mean, he, well, he thought he did. He was just one of those guys that puts down women to make them think he's super smarter, more intelligent. Yeah, to to kind that. of, like Mark had to describe this this type of person to me for me to understand, you know, what they are but it's a guy that tries to impress people by putting them down mm -hmm. and i know women do it too so it's not it's not i'm not saying it's a gender thing i'm just saying that it was his thing um and so i was like um okay because at the time i didn't really stand up for myself i had that's a, a trick i had to learn <laughs> and my my Italian husband, my very grumpy Italian New Yorker husband, uh, <laughs> has helped with that tremendously. <laughs> but 
uh, I just ignored it. I ignored this, the little slam there. And um, the next day when I was off of work, I went to Barnes and Noble, picked it up and started reading it. And it is one, uh, I, I was amazed actually that he couldn't get through it because mm-hmm. it's, it, it might be kind of a hard read, I guess. I found her writing very transparent. To, to I me, mean, it was. She was writing in English. She's a, a native Russian speaker, speaks, yeah. spoke about five languages, mm-hmm. but, but she was writing directly into English. Yeah. And I think she did an amazing job. She, yeah. I, you know, it it yeah. doesn't come across as that wasn't her original language. Anthem, when you read Anthem, you can kind of, you can kind of feel. But I think that was part of the tone. I think that I was think part was. of the point. Yeah. Um, she was a brilliant writer, and the Fountainhead. It, it taught me a lot about the beauty of language, but also actually thinking about what you believe. Um, when reading The Fountainhead, before I touched any of her nonfiction, before anything else, it made me question a lot of the things that I believed. It made me question why I had certain opinions, why I automatically trusted certain sources. And oddly enough, it it is the reason, it, it's, it still stands up to this day. Because if you read it, yeah, it was in the 1920s, so there's no social media. But there is the impact of mm-hmm. certain, quote, celebrities and the newspaper and the media at the time. It is still a, rele- a relevant point to this day right now. Social media, it's mirroring the same concepts in there. It's not about being conservative. It's mm-hmm. not about being liberal. It's about being a human being and and about facing and like facing obstacles and other people and their beliefs and still having your convictions no matter what. And it just her writing since picking up the fountainhead like I read Anthem during. I read The Virtue of Selfishness during. I was still not through the Fountainhead. And I know people tell me that Atlas Shrugged is better. Mm-hmm. I know some people tell me Atlas Shrugged is very preachy, but it's very good. It's, I, I will get to it someday, but she's dead and we can't get more work from her and I'm taking my time with it. Um, the Fountainhead still is my favorite book of all yeah. time. I've read it many times at this point. Um, it's it's not the best book ever written. I'll I'll mm-hmm. definitely say that. It's not um the most fun book I've ever read or the most involved I have ever been with a book, but it works on so many levels and it speaks to me on so many levels that it is it is probably my favorite book and it has influenced me in a way to understand myself, to understand to question everything. You know, that's why to me, it fits a lot with Buddhism is both of them say, don't just believe what people tell you, question it for yourself. Yeah. 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 Find out, learn it. And, and it transcends time. Yeah. And if you think it transcends time, Atlas Shrug really transcends. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it, but yeah, at the same time, I'm, I'm trying to make it last. Um, (laughs) Okay, so let's get to part two of Lauren's block. 
He is also the reason that when we were doing Schrodinger's Pet Shop, I started doing a newsletter and writing down my process and sending it out in the newsletter each week with along with all the stuff that we did during the meeting and sending it out to everybody. And I was writing down these, these articles on what I was learning as I was writing. And because I read his articles in Writer's Digest, and they were the only reason I wrote, read Writer's Digest, because there was absolutely nothing else in it ever from month to month that I gave a damn about. But what he said clicked with me, how he worked. And, and he just talked about how he did shit. You know, he just talked about how he sat down. And he, he did a specific number of pages a day. And when he was done, he got up and he said, but, you know, I don't recommend stopping in the middle of the sentence because I've done that. And it makes starting the next morning brutal because you don't remember what your sentence was going to be. I remember that from an article I read from him, what, Jesus, 30-some years ago in Writer's Digest? So I did that. I wrote down what I was doing because I thought, hey, not only is this going to be helpful for me to take apart my process, but it's going to be helpful for everybody else. And it is because of him that I put those things on the Internet when I got my first very, first, very little website. Um, I just put up my articles there because we weren't doing the writer's group at that time because I didn't have a writer's group at that time. So, And then it, it was because of him that I built this writing community so that we could sit and talk about writing. It is because of him that I built all of my writing classes. I'm getting a little teary-eyed right here. <laughs> this is a guy who gave me both ends of my career, who, who you know, not single-handedly, but pretty much, pretty close to it, gave, gave me the, the writing end of my writing career, um, the, the writing classes end of my writing career, and gave me a hell of a lot of everything that I use in my fiction. And for one guy to do all of that, um, it's just amazing. And I am deeply grateful. Okay, so clearly Holly is going to need a minute. <laughs> At A-I-A-R-W-I-P on Twitter, alone with invisible people on Instagram, alone in a room with invisible people on Facebook, and you can find us at alonewithinvisiblepeople.com. The best place to find us, however, is at hollyswritingclasses.com. We are in the forums um, several times a week. I try to pop in at least once daily, and that is the Alone with Invisible People forums. You have to create a free account. You get the free How to Write Flash Fiction That Does Not Suck course, as well as some summer fiction freebies. And we would love to see you in there. We want to see what your 10 most influential authors are. Uh, I am definitely always looking for recommendations. If anybody, by the way, has read Darcy Coates and has a recommendation on <laughs> someone who who is her, her book-alike, uh, go back and, and listen to our book-alike episode if you have not have not done that. And tell me, who, who is her book-alike? But yeah, give us your opinions. What are the the authors who have inspired you the most, who have been most influential on your work and your life. We would love to know that. If you're looking for ways to support the podcast because, you know, we're helping you out or we're inspiring you or we're giving you and, you know, information that is of value, you can go to alone with invisible people forward slash support us to find out how, but the most immediate way would be to um, support the podcast by using the affiliate links if you want to buy any of Holly's stuff. So you would just go 
to support us and there's a link there and it's affiliate links and you can see all of her courses and stuff and that way you're supporting both her and myself you can also go to coffee.com that's ko fi.com forward slash alone and there is um, a way to support the podcast right there if you just want to do a one-time thing you can go to alone with the invisible people Dot com and on the top right hand there is a paypal it's in increments of five ten or fifteen dollars and <laughs> honestly everything helps we have been in the situation where you've got no money um and you're struggling and you just can't even give a dollar we've both been there we've been we've, we've had many times where we were in negative so what you can do at that point is literally just share the podcast. Um, you can rate the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can like it. What Whatever method your preferred medium gives you to give it a like or subscribe or comment on the podcast. All of those things help us. You can share the podcast on social media. You can um, share our Twitter, Instagram feed. You can share our Facebook posts any of that stuff is helpful and if you have no money believe me we've been there that is a way to help us and we really appreciate it so is coming into the podcast forums and letting us know what you want to hear about letting us know your questions the next two episodes or at least the next one episode i know for a fact is going to be us going back to um, some of the older questions because we've been answering newer ones recently and we are going to answer some more questions so if you've got them and we haven't covered them drop them down in the podcast and we will do our very best to get you an answer all right so Let's get back to Holly. I think she has had time to <laughs> like regroup. So what is the takeaway for this episode? That everything you read matters, whether it's good or bad, because everything you read informs not just what you love to read, but also what you are capable of writing. It informs how you see the world. It informs how you understand your own life and what it means to be a human being. It informs both the good and the bad in you, and it changes you in ways that you don't even know you're being changed until sometimes years or decades later. So read. Read broadly. Read everything. Read with love and joy and excitement and curiosity and wonder. And, and with absolutely no standards whatsoever, read everything. <laughs> yeah, read everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, that has been our episode. We would love for you guys to come into the forums and tell us what are your most influential writers. And again, if you've got some twofers, you, you have we to understand. make sense. You have to, you have to be able to pull it together. Explain why they're, you know, twofers. But uh, yeah, get, give us your list. It, you're going to be introducing new authors to us. I know Holly yes. has for me. Yeah, broadening our, our reading list. Yes, yeah. And we are broad readers, so we're looking. Thank you for listening. Thank you for for being our wonderful listeners. Um, we love being able to communicate with you and to help in any way that we can. And um, I just want to say thank you again for listening. <laughs> Yes, thank you so much. We love being with you.